Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this, con this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Katrina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. And today's workshop is a collaborative effort between the Melanoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And we're delighted with that partnership, and we do partner with them on all of our skin cancer-related programs. And so um, you'll be hearing more um, from, uh, from, the, from the Melanoma Research Foundation as in the, during the program itself. Wonderful resource for all of you. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Kavahal. And Dr. Kavahal is Associate Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, co-leader, Precision Oncology and Systems Biology Program, Director Experimental Therapeutics, Director Melanoma Service, Columbia University Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Kavahal will be addressing overview of metastatic melanoma, including diagnosing and staging in the context of COVID-19 and experience, new treatment approaches, targeted therapy, tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, including sun and wind safety recommendations, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kavahal. Dr. Mesner, thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank Cancer Care and the Melanoma Research Foundation for putting this, this together. Um, so I, I guess I've got a few minutes to go over actually a huge number of topics here. Um, but, the, but the first is really just um, talking about the diagnosis of melanoma and really in the setting of COVID. Um, and I, as I think, you know, as I'm sure a lot of folks on the call knows, I mean, melanoma is a significant problem. Um, the incidence of diagnosis has been increasing pretty dramatically over time. So in 2022, we're anticipating diagnosing near 100,000 cases a year, uh, and it, which is pretty dramatic because even just five years ago, um, you know, there were maybe 85, 87,000 cases diagnosed a year. So it's a pretty dramatic increase. Um, but thankfully, despite that increase in incidence, because of increased awareness, increased education, um, increased screening, uh, and better therapies, uh, the number of people getting sick and passing away from melanoma has thankfully declined. Um, and, you know, you know I, I, I do think a large part of the success, right, in uh, improving outcomes in this disease has been um, the dramatic um, advances we've made in understanding, you know, what is melanoma, what is the biology of melanoma, and how can we best treat it? And in fact, um, you know, as of this year, we have 16 available therapies um, um, for, um, uh, for uh, cutaneous melanoma. In fact, just in March of this year, we have a new therapy, relatlimab, um, just approved. Um, and so I think, you know, the um, increasing research, um, the rapid development of these therapies, 
really has led to improved outcomes for our patients. Um, now, now, COVID was certainly a challenge for, for you know, everyone, I think, for patients, um, hospitals, physicians. Um, um, but, but certainly with COVID, you know, with, um, with people, you know, advised to stay home, not go to the doctors for a period of time, um, you know, once, once we started seeing folks again in clinic, we, we started seeing people with more advanced cases um, due to the fact that they weren't seeing their, their dermatologists regularly. Um, and, you know, during the period of COVID, we, we actually changed the way we, we took care of people with metastatic melanoma. Um, you know, we'll talk about standard therapies, but, you know, one of the common regimens we, we um, use in, in patients with advanced melanoma is a combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab, this combination of immunotherapy. Uh, which, which, you know, has really good outcomes, but is associated with some toxicities. And so as an example of something we changed because of COVID, uh, but, you know, I, I think, you know, just getting back to kind of bottom line, where we are, where are we with COVID for our patients? Um, you know, hopefully everyone has been you know, vaccinated and boosted, right? That's really important for our, our patients with cancer because we know that patients, you know, with metastatic disease, if they get COVID, the outcomes are worse, right, uh, than a patient without cancer who gets COVID. Um, so, you know, that, I, I can't emphasize enough that the, the vaccine, the boosters, it's very, very, it's very important. Um, now, as everyone here knows, um, there's, there's the additional booster that was just approved, right? And, and so the CDC does say that, um, you know, we recommend that some people with cancer get the additional COVID-19 um, dose as part of their standard vaccine series as well as the, the other booster. And why is that? Because um, cancer, uh, the treatments we use to, to treat cancer can weaken the immune system and increase the likelihood of, of people getting sick um, um, with, with COVID. Um, and so, you know, what, what am I telling my patients who, you know, everyone's asking, should we get the, should we get the, other, the, the other booster? I think for patients who have metastatic disease, uh, and certainly if they're getting cytotoxic chemotherapy, I, I would highly recommend that, that people get the booster. Um, and, and in general, I think if, 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 you're, if we're in doubt, I would go ahead and get it. Now, you know, personally for myself, I think for uh, individuals who, who aren't dealing with cancer, maybe it's reasonable to wait till the fall, um, you know, maybe before flu season comes again. Um, but, but again, I, I think it's very reasonable to get the the, the new booster at this point. Um, so, you know, why don't I move on to some new treatment approaches? Over the past year, there have been um, some um, actually major changes to, to the standard of care, what we can offer our patients. Uh, and what, what I'll do is maybe I'll talk about three specific trials that um, answered some really um, longstanding questions of the field. And one clinical trial was a trial that we called the DreamSeq trial. Um, and the DreamSeq trial was one that was trying to answer the question, um, is immunotherapy before targeted therapy any better or any worse than the opposite sequence of therapies? That is, for patients who have a BRAF mutant melanoma metastatic disease, should we do immunotherapy first or should we do targeted therapy first? Um, and until we got the results of the DreamSeq trial, um, we didn't really know. I mean, there was really just a bias in the academic field that immunotherapy was better, and that's what 
I think Dr. Daniels may agree, but a lot of us in kind of academic centers tended to do the combination of ipilimumab and ebolimab for our BRAC patients as a frontline therapy. Um, but if you look actually in the community, um, you know, about half of patients who are BRAC mutant actually got targeted therapy as, as frontline therapy, and maybe a quarter got ipilimumab. Um, and so this DreamSeq trial, it was a big randomized trial, a very ambitious study. Um, and, and really what, what, what it showed us pretty clearly is that um, if you do immunotherapy first, and then when that stops working, switch to targeted therapy, that sequence is better um, than starting with targeted therapy and then switching to immunotherapy at the time of progression. That's true for the, uh, for, um, the vast majority of patients. There are gonna be select cases where it's still, um, you still might want to start with targeted therapy. That is, um, you know, if, if we're concerned the disease is growing too fast or so forth. But, but I think, you know, given the results of the DreamSeq trial, if uh, a patient has BRAF mutant melanoma, um, the default should be uh, immunotherapy first. Um, the, the, the second big trial um, um, that has recently been reported is something called the Relative, Relativity 47 trial. Um, and this is a trial that looked at, at a new immunotherapy called relatinumab, um, which targets a different immunological checkpoint than does ipilimumab or nivolumab or pembrolizumab. Ipilimumab targets something called CTLA-4, pembrolizumab and nivolumab target PD-1, relatinumab targets something called LAG-3. Um, and by blocking um, LAG-3, uh, you can strengthen the function of immune cells. And so in this re uh, relativity trial, um, patients who had not received prior therapy were randomized to either the combination of relatinumab plus nivolumab or nivolumab alone. Um, and in this trial, it turns out that that combination of nivolumab plus relatinumab was better than nivolumab, okay? Um, that combination treatment was associated with a slightly increased risk of side effects um, um, but not as severe as the side effects that we saw with nivolumab and ipilimumab. And so, you know, how does this change the um, kind of landscape of therapy? Well, now for immunotherapy, we, we kind of have three options. Um, for me, the default option is the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab, which we know works very well um, with the goal of cure, but is associated with um, some significant side effects. Um, the second option, in my mind, is the combination of nivolumab and nivolatlumab, which again works very well. Um, now we have not compared it head to head with ipinivo, um, but numerically it works um, seems to work well. Maybe not as well as that combination, but the side effects appear to be better. Um, the third potential option is just to do PD-1 alone, so nivolumab or pembrolizumab. There. Um, that of all the regimens has the lowest level of side effects, um, but also seems to have the lowest um, amount of efficacy. Um, in reality, I think what's going to happen is that um, we're going to use either ipinivo, probably for most people, and, and any patients for whom we were thinking about doing nivolumab alone or pembrolizumab alone, um, I, I don't think we're going to do that anymore. I think those patients are going to get nivolumab and, and nivolumab. Um, you know, the last trial that I think is, is worth talking about, which is practice changing, is something called the Keynote 716 trial. 
and, and this was an important trial because um, this looked at does treatment with immunotherapy after surgery in patients with stage two disease. So this isn't metastatic disease, but this is um, um, you know kind of earlier stage melanoma, not involving the lymph nodes, um, but there's still a risk of the cancer coming back. If we treat those patients with um, a year of pembrolizumab, can that help reduce the risk of the cancer coming back? Um, and in this trial, um, patients were randomized to um, either a year of the pembrolizumab or a placebo. Um, and on this trial, it, it did show that patients who got that year of pembrolizumab did have a lower risk of the cancer coming back. So it was a positive trial. And what this trial did was it basically expanded access to this adjuvant immunotherapy, this preventative immunotherapy um, from the stage three and stage four um, no evidence of disease group of patients now to the stage 2B and 2C patient population. It works. It works across all those stages. The downside of the therapy is the risk of side effects. Now, it has the acute side effects that all the immunotherapies can have, like pneumonitis, hepatitis, dermatitis, colitis. Um, but in this sort of therapy, which is a preventative therapy, I think the most concerning of those side effects were what we call the endocrinopathies. And the difference between the endocrinopathies and the other ones is those endocrinopathies, if they occur, are permanent, whereas the other ones, we could treat with steroids and they go away. And so about 20% of patients who were treated with a pembrolizumab on this preventative trial ended up with a permanent endocrinopathy. It could be managed with replacement, replacement hormones, but, um, but certainly that's, that's a lifelong toxicity. Um, you know, what I think I'll do, I think I'm probably running out of time a little bit. Um, I, I'll, I'll briefly talk about targeted therapy and I think what, what folks on the call need to know and um, a little bit about um, you know, how to take care of your skin, and then I'll pass it over. But with the targeted therapy, um, you know, although I said that immunotherapy, um, given the choice, has to be done first, targeted therapies still have an important role in this disease. We know about 50% of melanomas will have a mutation in a gene called BRAF, um, which turns on this growth pathway called the MAP kinase pathway. If we shut down that pathway, patients can get long and durable benefit. And, and we shut down the pathway with, with pills, basically. Um, there are other mutations that we can find in melanoma in genes like um, KIT, where there can be alterations in this um, gene called NTRAC, um, and other less common ones uh, which, for which we have pills that we can give, uh, and they can be very, very effective. Um, now, the only way that we would know um, if a patient's cancer is driven by one of these alterations for which we have a potential pill treatment is by testing. Um, and, and we do this testing off of tumor that's typically already been cut out. We can just send it to the lab and they can do sequencing of those um, genes of interest. Um, and then we'll get the report back to see, you know, is there an action, what we call a quote unquote actionable alteration um, or, or not. And if there is, then it lets us know that you know, one of these pill treatments may be an effective option. Bottom line, um, you know, in my mind, all patients with melanoma should have um, their tumors tested for, um, for these genetic alterations. Uh, and finally, I'm just going to close on kind of the general skin care. Um, you know, the treatments that we use for melanoma, uh, the immunotherapies, the target therapies, really the chemotherapies, uh, any of those treatments can have affect the skin. So it's really important to, to be, you know, be gentle with the skin. Um, you know, 
um, keep the skin moist, do a lot of um, um, moisturizers um, and, and so forth. Um, sunscreen, you know, absolutely critical. Um, the key points for sunscreen is you want um, one that covers both UVB and UVA um, rays. Um, you want an SPF of 30 or higher. Um, and when you do use this, it has to be reapplied frequently. So, you know, every two hours or so. Um, long sleeve clothes, wide brimmed brim hats, those are all very, very good ideas. So, Carolyn, I think I may have gone a few minutes early. Maybe I'll kind of end it there and I can certainly take questions on any of these topics later. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. That was really outstanding, Dr. Kavashal. Uh, just a wonderful setting the stage for the program today and just a wonderful presentation, just exquisite. And, and really, um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much, really. It's amazing. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is Professor of Medicine at UC San Diego, San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing the role of immunotherapy and precision medicine, um, clinical trial updates in the context of COVID-19, how research contributes to treatment options, controlling side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, key questions to ask when communicating with your healthcare team, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of prepared questions, follow-up care, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Caroline. And um, I'll pick up um, the topic where Dr. Carvajal was uh, um, going. Um, one thing that um, was great to hear, and um, I'm not sure everybody picks up on it in melanoma, but um, he mentioned that a goal is a goal of cure. And uh, over the last decade, um, the therapies that have come out of clinical trials and available to us now have really changed the outcomes in general for patients, um, whereas before melanoma um, was was universally, um, nearly universally poor outcomes. But now um, some of the therapies that uh, we have available to us have really changed the long-term outcomes uh, such that a fraction of the patients actually can go through therapy for advanced disease and then get off uh, treatment altogether and not have a sign of a tumor come back. And we know that because some of our clinical trials are now out six to eight years of follow-up uh, with people off studies. So to get there, um, one of the topics was the role of immunotherapy and precision medicine. Precision medicine, as Dr. Carvajal was saying, is, is are drugs that are targeted to gene changes that may occur in the tumor. And it's a, it's a big topic, hot topic, and a lot of patients come in wanting kind of in their mind to know what makes their tumor drive forward. You know, why, why is this tumor growing? And gene sequencing, or what we call next generation sequencing, gives us information on DNA changes, um, can give us information on uh, gene expression, and a wealth of other knowledge. And we can take that and try to apply either targeted therapies and now, um, with some um, hope, we're also able to start to tailor our immune therapies using this information. So we're really getting into, um, hopefully, another chapter of trying to um, direct patient care um, with this information using both 
these uh, gene markers as well as other biomarkers. And that's where uh, clinical trials come in. Um, as Dr. Carvajal said, um, he outlined three recent studies that um, really helped answer some questions. Um, unfortunately, they beg uh, many more questions every time we learn something. And so um, even in this last two years of the pandemic, it's been important uh, to keep clinical trials going. Um, it's been a challenge because clinical trials have the barrier of added visits uh, sometimes or traveling a little bit longer to a different treatment center. So it's been tough on patients. It's been a challenge for the treating team because the treating team um, has monitoring visits uh, from outside um, regulators and um, sponsors that come in and look over the work. Um, but a lot of places have really um, put in a a large effort to keep clinical trials going. Um, and we need to understand how these things, these infections, uh, interact in the real world uh, with our therapies. And so there have been studies looking at um, outcomes for patients who are getting immune therapy, who get vaccines, or get immune therapy and get infected. And so we need to continue to learn, learn about that. Um, clinical trials. Um, probably serve about 10% of the oncology patients. Um, it, until we get to that point where we have the answer for everybody with therapies that cure without side effects, um, you know, we're striving to have everybody on a clinical trial, but the reality is that's, that's just not feasible. And, it, and that's for many reasons. Um, it's not feasible because it, they may not be available in your location, um, and so it becomes um, an access issue or it's overwhelming. Um, you were just diagnosed with a, one problem, and now all of a sudden you're considering clinical trials, which itself, uh, by definition, is another unknown. Um, clinical trials are trying to answer questions we don't know the answers to, and that adds, um, uh, understandably, some feelings of anxiety and feeling overwhelmed. Um, so clinical trials are not for everybody, but I think a discussion uh, should happen uh, with your provider. You know, is there a study, or um, are there opportunities for me at this at this stage in, in my disease process to participate in a clinical trial, and what would that look like? Um, so, my next topic was controlling side effects, symptoms, and discomfort. As Dr. Carvall said, um, these these drugs can um, cause different side effects. The targeted therapies cause sun sensitivity, and sun protection is very important. Um, the immune therapies um, have a laundry list of possible side effects. Uh, fortunately, not all of them happen to everybody, and they happen at different frequencies. But um, you need to know um, the side effects. So the first thing in managing uh, the potential side effects is to know the list. Um, as, again, patients, this might be their first experience um, with treatments, and these uh, newer medications are different than um, what one may have experienced with somebody in the past as a friend or a family. Um, the immune therapies, for example, at our institution, a patient who's on immune therapies automatically gets flagged in the medical record uh, because our physicians need to think about them differently when they come into the emergency room because a sore throat um, could be a sore throat, or it could be inflammation in the thyroid. Um, 
and that's not a usual problem that walks into the emergency room. It's more usually a sore throat, but if somebody's on immune therapies, then thyroiditis um, or anything that you can put the word itis after is a possibility. And management is based on the severity of the, of the toxicity. Um, you know, we try to anticipate them and keep them minimal, but if they uh, do progress, then we have to decrease the immune response. Um, key questions to ask your healthcare team? Well, um, really, uh, it is good to sit down and talk it over before coming into the office. Um, it's great when uh, patients come in with a list of questions, believe it or not, um, because for me it's, it shows that they've been thinking about this, that they've gotten to a point where they're not feeling just completely overwhelmed. And it gives us a starting point of me knowing kind of where their mindset is and what's going on. So we all do appreciate people bringing in questions um, and having a couple. Um, I really try to encourage that, and I encourage you to, to bring in those questions. Um, you know, such as, um, you know, what is the goal of therapy? I hate to say it, but um, sometimes we don't mention that. You know, um, the goal of a targeted therapy might be to relieve the symptoms quickly and to get quality of life back up, but that particular therapy might not uh, be curative or might not be expected to be the last therapy that you're on. So if that's the case, what is plan B? Uh, what is our next therapy plan? Uh, should I be looking at uh, clinical trials and um, and things like that? So there are a million questions. You don't have to ask a million, um, but please um, ask a few. Uh, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine. Um, we, we're not going back. Um, I think telemedicine is here to stay. It's a great resource um, for patients and uh, providers because they allow us to communicate better. Um, However, it gets overwhelming. Um, patients are sending um, secure chats um, a lot, um, such that you know, we, um, I have um, the way our practice works is uh, I'm fortunate to have a, a physician assistant who who screens through most of those and gets back to patients. But they're not they're not for emergency type questions, but um, uh, for less urgent uh, less urgent uh, issues. As far as preparing for the, the teleconference, um, certainly having somebody else there is helpful. Um, certainly having a quiet environment is helpful. Uh, making sure your connection's good and making sure you've logged in at least once before because there's always 10 minutes of questions and check-ins and things to get through and, and you don't want to be uh, stressed out about being late uh, to the appointment. Um, so I would prepare early. So I'm going to pause there. We're at the hour um, because I'm looking forward to really hearing some of these questions from, from the audience. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was also outstanding, exquisite, and just a wonderful presentation. And um, I know there will be lots of questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And um, our next speaker is um, Amy Marborough, and uh, Ms. Marborough is ex Education Officer, Melanoma Research Foundation, and she will be addressing Melanoma Research Foundation's free programs and events, and also talk about how to access information from their website as well. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my part organization um, uh, and, and to uh, collaborate on this program today, um, Ms. Marborough. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, the Melanoma Research Foundation is always so grateful to be a part of these um, educational opportunities with cancer care. Um, and so we're delighted to be uh, joining you all today. Um, also, I want to thank Dr. Carvajal and Dr. Daniels. Um, they provided um, some really important information um, for the melanoma patient community um, and their um, experience and um, dedication to the melanoma community is truly invaluable. Um, as Dr. Messner said, my name is Amy Marbaugh, um, as I'm the Education Officer at the Melanoma Research Foundation. Um, and just a brief history about the MRF, um, in case you um, are not aware of the organization. Um, we were founded in 1996 by a metastatic melanoma patient. Her name was Diana Ashby. She was in her mid-30s, and she was on her third recurrence of metastatic melanoma. Uh, she was told that there were no other treatment options available to her. She had exhausted all of her options and um, that there was nothing else that could be done for her. Uh, she found this completely unacceptable being so young, and so she and her husband started the foundation in an effort to fund research grants uh, for researchers and clinicians with the hope of finding new treatment options and hopefully one day a cure for melanoma. Uh, Diana passed away before the first research grants were issued, um, but obviously her legacy lives on today, 26 years later, and several melanoma treatment options um, have become available um, thanks in part to her efforts um, and the foundation's efforts. In my role, um, I oversee the creation of all of the MRF's educational content. We have a variety of learning opportunities, including a library of education materials that are both available in print and online. Uh, we also have a webinar series entitled Ask the Expert, um, which uh, convenes monthly. Um, they're live webinars um, on a variety of topics important to the melanoma community. Uh, viewers can uh, ask questions during the live session um, at the end, um, and or you can watch these um, videos on demand at a time that's more convenient for you if you're unable to join us live. We have a, um, several patient meetings at cancer centers across the country that are offered um, now in person as well as virtually um, to help reach a wider audience so that you don't have to necessarily go to the cancer center or be treated at a cancer center to hear the latest and greatest in melanoma care from experts across the country. And finally, we're really proud to have an animated um, video series that takes um, uh, really complex melanoma um, treatments, diagnoses, um, things like that, and really uh, make it a very visual experience um, that helps to make it easier to understand. All of these opportunities can be found at the MRF's website, which is melanoma.org. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. And for those of you who have uh, ventured into the latest platform, we're also on TikTok. Uh, if you have any specific needs, you can always reach out to me at education and at melanoma.org, and I can hopefully provide some um, additional information and support. Um, again, we're really happy to be partnering with Cancer Care. Thank you so much. And if anyone has any questions um, about some resources, uh, I'm always happy to, to help provide uh, any answers or any um, information. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Barbara. That was really wonderful, and actually, it's a wonderful resource. So, for any, many of you know of the of the Melanoma Research Foundation, but if you do not, please take advantage. It's a wonderful resource for you. Um, and um, at the end, well, actually, on Monday, you'll be getting um, a Survey Monkey evaluation from us, from Cancer Care, and in that evaluation will be any resource that was mentioned on the program today, including the Melanoma Research Foundation, how to access 
information from that site and really um, and and how to get the, all the resources, which would be so helpful to all of you. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization um, providing services to people throughout the United States. Um, and um, for many of our global participants as well, um, if you email Cancer Care at our website, um, we will clearly, our oncology social work staff will clearly um, respond to your emails and try to get you resources within your communities um, in the countries that you live. Um, there are resources, of course, are, are around the globe for everyone. Um, dealing with melanoma, a metastatic melanoma, um, and um, or with any type of cancer. Um, so what are our free programs and services? What do they consist of? So we have um, a hope line that people often call. It's, a, it's an 800 number, and people can call. And when they call, the line is picked up by an oncology social worker. We have about over 40 oncology social workers on staff. And they will address your questions and concerns. And they'll also go over with you all the services we offer. So what are those services? So we do offer practical and financial assistance to people in the United States. Actually, our financial assistance is for people in the United States. But again, globally, there are other resources that we would be able to connect you to. We also have a case management team. So if we don't have the resource you need, that staff will take you to um, the resources that you need in your community, um, either uh, in your in locally or regionally or nationally within within your um, within your state um, or within the United States. Um, we also, or nationally, of course, globally. Um, in addition, we also offer online support groups, and people find those very helpful because um, you get to speak with um, uh, other people who have similar concerns and questions, and so it's a wonderful resource. And, and also what's great about it is it's not in real time like this particular program is, but those groups occur um, actually uh, not in real time, so you can post any time of the day or night, and our oncology social workers do moni monitor those programs and do facilitate them, and people find them very helpful. And indeed, you know, people are often up in the middle of the night or all different times of the day, and so it's really nice to be able to have, um, you know, to have that uh, resource to all of you. We also offer these type of workshops, um, about 75 of them per year, on different types of cancer and on different types of topics, on caregiving and uh, on many different topics that people find um, very helpful to them. And you can access um, resources about all the different topics we do. If you go to our website, you'll be able to see all the different programs that we have coming up, um, and you can register for them. They are available to anyone. Um, you know, anyone actually throughout um, the year. I mean, that's, and they are available both people in the United States and globally as well. And we also do offer publications so that we have materials that you can um, um, access um, either on our website or we can um, make them available to you as well. So that gives you a, a, a really good snapshot of the different services that we offer. And now I'm going to ask Katrina to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And Katrina will explain to you how to queue up the questions, and I'm going to ask her to give you those um, instructions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the one on your touch tone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. 
those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question from our online participants, um, and so I'll start with that um, for those questions. So, um, and the first one is, um, and this will be um, for Dr. Carvajal, um, who is part of my treating healthcare team if I am diagnosed with melanoma? Do I still see my dermatologist or just my oncologist? Dr. Carvajal, could you start with that question? Yeah, of course. That's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, I think for anyone with cancer, um, the, the team that you have to be working with will be multidisciplinary in nature. It should be multiple people. Um, in, in the setting of, of a metastatic melanoma, now, but, but the person who's going to kind of take the lead in that team may change over time. Um, so um, typically I would say kind of the, the lead physician of the team in this case would be a medical oncology. Um, there still may be a role, though, for um, folks in radiation oncology, surgical oncology. Um, and, uh, and I have to say, for management of side effects, I think it's really important to, to make sure we've got the relevant specialists on board as well. Um, and, so, um, and so I think dermatologists are really critical in, in making sure that, you know, the, the skin toxicity, um, you know, is managed as well as possible and so forth. Um, you know, as, as I think the use of these immunotherapies become much, much more common, um, you know, bringing in folks with GI expertise or, you know, lung expertise um, is, is really important as we're starting to see the side effects with a pneumonitis or hepatitis or colitis. Um, you know, not infrequently we're bringing in the rheumatologist to help with the joint um, pains and discomforts that we're seeing and so forth. Um, so, so the team might be big. And it, it definitely varies um, based off of what treatment people are getting and, and, you know, kind of how the treatment course is going. So this is wonderful for people to hear and to be aware of the, the size of the team and the numbers of people that, of expert um, um, healthcare professionals that are needed on that team. Thank you. And our next question, and this is um, for Dr. Um, Daniels, how do you know if treatment is working or you need to change treatment? Yeah, sure. So um, it really depends on kind of what stage of the therapy you're, you're at in the disease process. For example, um, as Dr. Carvajal said, there's uh, recently been an approval in stage two melanomas for adjuvant treatment. Adjuvant is a drug that we give to prevent or lower the risk of uh, cancer coming back. And it's given for a set period of time. So how do you know it's working when you start treatment and you don't have cancer? You know, in those scenarios, we're monitoring toxicity, so keeping quality of life up becomes one of the goals. Um, and we're looking for the absence of cancer, so uh, talking about symptoms um, and doing occasional routine scans in the absence of symptoms to look. And that differs you know, greatly from if you have metastatic disease um, with what we call measurable disease, um, that you can see something on a scan, maybe there's a lung nodule or there's something in the skin that you're following. Um, and there, it depends a little bit on the treatments. So some of the targeted therapies, we might expect a response very quickly. Um, some of them, symptoms can change within days of starting uh, treatment. Uh, we see quick responses whereas other treatments are delayed. Uh, immune therapy is typically uh, 
a delayed response. And we might not see something for three, six, or nine weeks from the start of uh, starting treatment. And seeing something is, is um, a composite. Uh, again, we're watching for symptom changes because um, that's one of the early indicators. Or um, we're throwing um, in scans in, in, at appropriate intervals. So, you know, there's sometimes the desire to have PET scans, you know, every month um, because um, one can imagine, again, kind of the concern that's going on. But that's not necessarily the right uh, monitoring strategy. It may be that a CT scan of the chest um, is the best test to get at um, a two- or three-month interval. So talking over to your doc um, and asking, you know, how how are you monitoring success in this particular way is going to vary, and the timing is going to vary just depending on some of those variables. Thank you. Um, thanks so much. And good Dr. Kava, how should all moles be tested? <laughs> uh, well, I think the answer is no. <laughs> but you know, I think I think the reason for that question is, I, I mean, it's a good one, right? How, how do you know which moles are problematic and which ones are not? Um, and, and there, you know, we really depend on the expertise of the dermatologist. Um, you know, I have to say, you know, um, patients with a personal history or a family history of melanoma, um, individuals with, with multiple funny-looking moles or dysplastic mesi, they're probably, you know, best served by seeing a, a dermatologist with, with a particular interest in pigmented lesions, right? Some centers will have these pigmented lesion clinics. Um, yeah, because as as you can imagine, the the more of these, you know, funny looking moles people see, the better they're going to be at figuring out is it is it a bad one that has to be biopsied, or is it one that we can just watch. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess it's a great question for a dermatologist, but there there are various tools that they have, right? So in addition to looking at the lesions with our naked eye, they've got tools like uh, you know dermatoscopes, which kind of um, show um, features of, of the pigmented lesion you, you can't see with the naked eye. Um, and there are other kind of AI-guided approaches to try to figure out is, is the lesion worrisome or not. So, so I think, you know, any lesion that's pigmented that you're worried about should be evaluated by, by dermatologists with experience in pigmented lesions. Um, not every lesion has to be biopsied. That, that was my answer. Thank you. Thanks so much. And um, the next question is, um, how are very large tumors treated as opposed to small tumors um, for Dr. Um, Daniels? Sure. Yeah. So um, we, we do think about, um, in our term that we use sometimes as burden of disease, um, you know, um, is the tumor affecting um, a patient's uh, daily life? Is it in a location? So sometimes a small tumor um, can be devastating and a large tumor can be innocuous. Um, so it really depends also on location of, of where things are. In general, um, smaller is better. <laughs> and all our therapies have better outcomes uh, when we start treatment earlier and uh, with less disease. So one of the, a little bit of a uh, part of the tragedy of the COVID experience has been 
access limitations and delays in therapy. That things um, sometimes, oh, I, I have this symptom, but I'm not going to get it checked out because of um, COVID, or I can't get into the dermatologist um, quickly, or um, it's thrown up extra barriers. So we definitely have seen that impact care uh, because uh, the earlier, either smaller or bigger um, issue or earlier stage, uh, outcomes are always better. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, um, and there is a great a comment on that, just a great push now to actually begin to have people screened more um, now that um, things have um, well, things are different in different parts of the country and world, but just um, is there more of a message out to people to be sure to, to, to get... Time to catch up with your dermatologic exams. And, yeah. and I agree, not all moles need to be biopsied, uh, to go back to that. But kind of two simple ones I always try to get out there is, you know, see spot change, um, see somebody. Um, so if you see something evolving, um, it shouldn't. The second one is if it sticks out way above the background, it's like, wow, that one's really different than everything else, um, that should get evaluated. Excellent. Thank you. And for Dr. Kavahal, um, I have a recurrence, um, and I'm worried I responded well to Nevo IP before. Can I use the same treatment? Um, would it work again? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so, so it's definitely true that um, in, 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 there, there are cases where, you know, we treat someone with immunotherapy, in this case it's Inevo, or if they've got a BRAS mutation, you know, BRAS mech um, therapy. Um, and, and, and sometimes it'll work for a while and stop working, or sometimes um, we'll treat for a while and then the disease will disappear or will resect um, whatever disease is, is still there. Um, and then at some point, the cancer comes back and becomes a problem. If we re retreat with the same therapy, it can sometimes work. But whether or not we'll, it, will, it might work, it depends upon, you know, how well the response was initially, um, how long it's been, um, you know, between, these, between the time that we used that treatment last and we're planning to, to start it again. Um, and, and so... And so, so we we can see responses, but it's you know the likelihood is is, is really variable. Um, you know, I think you know I'd love to hear what Dr. Daniels thinks, but I mean, if if there were good alternative options, um, I think it would be reasonable to try those first. Um, but certainly, if I think um, if needed, it's it's not unreasonable to to retry again, particularly if it's been a long time since you've had that regimen. Yeah, I, I agree, um, that length of time. So there's um, data with ipilimumab, that's the IPI, uh, Caroline, um, that if you had a response and at least six months had gone by um, before the tumor started to grow again, that there was a good chance that you could respond again to it. Um, but the other variable is um, how, how you tolerated it, did you get? Um, all four planned doses the first time, what happened afterwards. And it's a, you know, I definitely keep it on the list of options, but, you know, I talk to your provider and say, hey, in my case, um, 
does it make sense to try Ipinevo again, or shall we move on to clinical trial or something else? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And we have a telephone question, um, Katrina. Our question comes from Izumi G. Your line is now open. Uh, hi. Yes, uh, doctor. I'm on the targeted therapy, Braftobi Nextobi, and I started the medication uh, 2020, June 15, and the tumor disappeared, I think, I think between two months to five months, according to my scan, because five months later, the November 15th, there was no more tumor. So I had been, uh, I had a complete response. Uh, and uh, the, I called Pfizer because they moved uh, this uh, chart, like a Cromba study chart that tells the uh, patient characteristics, progression-free survival, overall survival, overall response rate, duration of response. So now they have updated five years uh, response, but I was told by my oncologist uh, this chart doesn't apply to me because I had a complete response. Uh, so and your question, I, and your question? Yeah, my your question, question is because I had a complete response uh, due to my overall survival rate, that's, let's say the median is 33.6 months, or the progression-free, the median, median is 14.9 months, uh, does that change because I had a complete response? And how many months would it be, if you know, until okay. the melanoma comes back? Okay, well, thank you because for that excellent question. Okay, thank you for that excellent question. And I'm going to ask yeah. Dr. Daniel to address this in a general way because, of yeah. course, we don't have all the details, but you can yeah. just address this generally. Yeah, so um, the generic names are also dibrafenib and trametinib um, for the... Um, uh, ones that we've studied longer, so the the encarafenib um, uh, ones. How shall I say this? Um, are are newer and we have less uh, long-term follow-up. So I'm going to talk about dibrafenib and trametinib because we have five-year and beyond uh, clinical trial data, and uh, I will caveat it with. Um, when we look and, and talk about 19% here and 47% there, that, those aren't your numbers, uh, right? Those are clinical trial numbers based on large groups of people um, and their, their averages. And the thing about averages are they're people that um, things do better and things do worse. It's good to know the averages um, because it gives you some idea. And what we know is that people who have a complete response on average, they do much better than those that have a partial response, and their curves are different. So curves are different if you have a complete response or partial response um, than just the whole group of people. But I, it's great that you have a complete response. Um, I think it's a now a discussion with your with your oncologist um, talking about you know Plan B, what's the next step? Am I doing this medication until the possibility of the tumor comes back, or am I looking at uh, other alternatives, or you know what they advise? So, this is, this is an area of active um, research, trying to understand what to do with somebody with a, a great uh, response to targeted therapy, because um, uh, we just need to know kind of 
better long-term management. Excellent. Thank you, and I hope that's helpful to our participants. Thank you so much, and please do take this information back to the healthcare team. Thank you. Um, and um, we have one uh, final question here um, for Dr. Kapahal. What are the different types of machines for stereotactic radio surgery? Yeah, so, um, yeah, great question. So, so in general, I think the two predominant um, types of this kind of high-dose focal radiation is either gamma knife or stereotactic radio surgery. Um, and and in, in reality, the efficacy of either is the same. There's going to be some institutional difference in kind of which which um, technology they they invest in. Um, but I you know I, I wouldn't be too concerned about is one better than the other. They they can both work extremely well. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers um, and our participants for just this amazing. Uh, program today, and I want to thank you for actually um, both asking such great questions um, and also for um, our speakers being so terrific and responding to your questions. It's been, we've done this program before, but I have to say this is probably, um, we've had the most um, well sophisticated questions and the most wonderful answers um, from our speakers. I do want to um, acknowledge that uh, we want to be sure that you all um, we hope that you've all learned things from today's program today, but we want you um, to think about if you asked a question, if you have a question yet to ask, or if you have a question that you're thinking of asking, please take all of these questions back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best. They know all about your treatment, your history, and they actually would be quite able to then address your questions. And perhaps hopefully one thing you've definitely learned today is that all your questions are wonderful and important and that no matter what your question is, please bring it to your healthcare team because, again, they have your medical records, they know all about you, and they're in the best position to address your questions. In addition, um, I do also want to say that, um, uh, that um, actually, uh, that, you know, we also want you to um, take advantage of the services of the Melanoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care and your healthcare team because they, of course, know you the best and they actually um, are really um, able to address your questions um, in the best possible way. Um, and, um, and do take advantage of the services of the Melanoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And with that being said, I want to Wish you all a very fine day, and I want to thank you all for your participation today. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.